Hello, and welcome to the Wild Heart Meditation Center podcast. We release these episodes every week on Wednesday mornings, and the best way to support us is by clicking subscribe and taking a moment to rate the podcast wherever you are listening. If you'd like to support our efforts to keep the nonprofit Meditation Center open in Nashville, you can donate via Venmo by sending your donation to at Wild Heart Nashville, or you can make a donation through our website, wildheartmeditationcenter.org by clicking the donate tab. Peace and love. Hope you enjoy. And that's actually a good transition in today, today's talk because we're going to be talking about the middle path. And after the Buddha's awakening, he kind of has this moment where he struggles and he's having this internal discussion with himself in the suttas. And he's like, how do I teach this to people? And he kind of goes back and forth. He says, if I was to try to teach this, you know, our minds are so conditioned to fixate on things. You know, our minds are so conditioned to kind of aimlessly wander throughout our lives. And to try to really sit down and watch the mind, he says, is subtle. He said, it's difficult to see. He said, it's discerned by the wise. And he said, to try to teach this to people would be a pain in the ass for me. He says, tiring and vexing, which I think the translators were being kind. I think he was, and be a pain in the ass because, not because the practice is hard, not because it's intellectually difficult to understand, but because the mind is very powerful and it, its influence on our perspective is very subtle, right? It's very pervasive. And so he goes through this battle and he decides, okay, I'm going to teach. And he comes across a guy on the road and the guy says, oh my gosh, you're radiant and luminous and just this seemed like this really highly realized being. And the Buddha was like, yeah, totally. That's what I am. <laughs> and the guy was like, okay, dude, cool. And wandered off. And then the Buddha realized his second lesson, which is, well, how? How do I teach this? How do I teach this to people? And so he thought of his friends. These are the five ascetics that he had been practicing with before his awakening. He said, well, if there's anyone that's hardcore enough to want to understand the subtlety of how powerful the mind is, it's going to be these five ascetics. And so he wanders back to his friends, and he delivers this first teaching. And it's called the Dhamma Chaka Papatavana Sutta, and it means setting in motion the wheel of the Dharma. And it's a very important teaching because, for me, it's the first teaching that the Buddha offers, which I think is significant. But it also lays the foundation of the whole path of practice that the Buddha is offering. And I want to read it. I'm not going to go through the entire sutta because I really want to focus on the Eightfold Path in the section where the Buddha talks about the Eightfold Path. But this is how it goes. So he finds his friends, the five ascetics, and he says, there are, friends, two dead ends which should not be pursued by one who has gone forth. Which two? 
addiction to pleasure through indulging in sensuality, which is low, village-like, pertaining to the unawake person, undignified, and most importantly, unfulfilling. And the other dead end, which is addiction to self-punishment, which is painful, also undignified, and most importantly, unfulfilling. And then there's this middle way, friends, awakened to by the Tathagata. And it does not lead to these dead ends, but makes for vision and knowledge, it's conducive to calming, lucid understanding, awakening, and Nibbana. And what, friends, is the middle way? It is just this noble eightfold path. That is wise view, wise intention, wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood, wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration. And then he gives us a task later in the sutta. He doesn't just teach a lesson. He gives us a practice to undertake, and that is this is the path. It can be cultivated. It has been cultivated. So one of the things that's unique to the Buddhist teachings is that he gives us a manual, not a rule book, not a doctrine or a dogma or a system of belief. It's very clear throughout the suttas that the Buddha is not interested in what you believe in. He's interested in how you live your life. And over and over and over again, the Buddha is repeatedly reminding us that he's not interested in what you believe in. As a matter of fact, he says that what you believe in getting fixed to your beliefs can cause you a tremendous amount of suffering. Yet, the middle path, we also have to have belief. We have a mind that has to take stock of our life and how we want to organize it in our mind and how we want to move through it in our mind. We need structure. We need some way to understand ourselves and our meaning of being in the world, right? Because I don't know about you, but when I don't have, when I haven't in the past had the support of a spiritual practice to help guide me, and I relied kind of only on how I felt that day and what I wanted to do, for me, my life ended up pretty miserable. Now, I'm maybe an extreme case. I don't think everybody ends up using methamphetamine and crack cocaine and, you know, all of those things winds up in jail. But um, maybe perhaps more oppressive is these kind of prisons we find ourselves in in our head, you know, these kind of stuck places of isolation and separation and uh, skepticism and doubt and distrust and paranoia and you know, all of these kind of ways that the mind can create this prison of feeling separate. And so we kind of need a map to help guide us, but we don't want to hold on to it too tightly. 
And I want to read one of the suttas that the Buddha offers on this, and it's called The Raft. And it's one of the many, if you're interested in some of these suttas where the Buddha talks about how we want to hold our view, our beliefs, um, I'm happy to share some of those with you. But this one's called The Raft. It's a short one. And here the Buddha says, Suppose, friends, a man on the course of his journey sees a great expanse of water whose near shore was dangerous and fearful and whose further shore was safe and free from fear. But there was no ferry boat or bridge going to the far shore. Then this man thought, Suppose I collect grass, twigs, branches, and leaves and bind them together as a raft. And supported by the raft and making an effort with my hands and my feet, I got safely across to the far shore. Having arrived at the far shore, he then might think, this raft's been very useful for me. Suppose I were to hoist it on my head or load it on my shoulder and then carry it around with me wherever I went. Now, friends, what do you think? By doing so, would that man be doing what should be done with the raft? He's got some smart disciples. They said, no, venerable sir. And then he goes on and says, by doing what, by doing what would the man be doing what should be done with the raft? Having arrived at the far shore, he might think thus, this raft has been very helpful to me. Suppose I were to just haul it onto dry land or set it adrift in the water now, then I could be free to go wherever I want. Now, monks, now, friends, it is by so doing that the man would be doing what should be done with the raft. So I've shown you how the Dharma, which is his teaching, is similar to a raft, being for the purpose of crossing over, not for the purpose of grasping. Monks, when you know the Dharma to be similar to a raft, you should abandon even the good advice of the Dharma. How much more... Um, well, then he goes on to say, and also the bad advice. <laughs> so it's this kind of clinging to our beliefs that can cause us suffering, but we've got to find a way to support us. You know, something to have confidence in, a direction. Bhikkhu Bodhi wrote a book called The Noble Eightfold Path. And he says that the only requisites on following the Eightfold Path are to start and to continue. And then Joseph Goldstein said, and he would add a third, which is to know that you're going in the right direction. Right? And so when he teaches, he offers these eight uh, factors, these eight kind of guidelines to help support us on our path. And these are Wise view, intention, speech, action, livelihood, effort, mindfulness, and concentration. And if you look at these factors of the Eightfold Path in the text, before each of these eight is this word Sama. I think it's S-A-M-M-A, -M -M -A, Sama. And we've kind of defined this as either right view, you might have heard, or wise view, but the word sama actually means something like complete or harmonious. It's like a holistic 
So again, when you're looking at the Eightfold Path, we're not trying to figure out, oh, this is the right thing to view or the right way to act, but this is a way that seems to produce harmony and balance and clarity. And so the Buddha says, okay, the path is to be cultivated. And we wanted to offer a little bit of an overview of the Eightfold Path, starting with wise view. And the piece of wise view that I want to really focus on is this um, perspective of karma in Buddhism. And now in our Western society, I think we have a misleading understanding of what karma is. Right? I kind of grew up thinking karma was this like piggy bank in the sky that was keeping my balance. You know, and I think because of how most of us are introduced to spirituality and religion is this kind of understanding of this, you know, kind of divine authority, whether it's the authority of the universe or the authority of a god, but there's something kind of externally keeping track of whether we're doing good enough or not. And that's a cause of a lot of suffering, the Buddha is saying. So this was actually the worldview at the time of the Buddha. Not a lot has changed. Right? It's not even a particularly one religion problem. It's just kind of been around for a long, long time is that these people called the Brahmins that practiced Brahmanism at the time that the Buddha lived had this kind of view of karma that where you were born into the world, all of your life circumstances were due to your previous actions in a previous life. And so you can see how this kind of deterministic view can be really oppressive. It's like, okay, you're born, that's your lot in life, it's because of what you've done in the past. And what's important when the Buddha teaches karma is actually he changes the whole emphasis of it. So karma wasn't his idea, but what he did with it is really important, which is he said, karma is actually focused on action. It actually literally means action. So karma is the potential through your thought and through your speech and through your behavior to shape your reality. So he's not saying your reality is predetermined. He's actually saying you're creating your reality based on the movements of your mind, your intentions, your speech, your actions, how you show up in the world, that all of these things are really important. So be careful. Watch your mind. Watch your speech. Watch your actions because they really dictate your level of peace your level of freedom. And so if you look at the rest of the path factors, you'll find that what follows view is intention, speech, action, and livelihood. Your mind shapes what comes out your mouth, shapes what you do, shapes how you set up your life, right? And we could almost just kind of look at the behavioral psychologist and be like, yeah, the Buddha kind of said it 2,600 years ago, right? All of this stuff around cause and effect and its impact on our psychology. 
Right, so when I look at this, it seems very pragmatic. It doesn't seem that metaphysical to me. And when I look at the emphasis of what the Buddha is offering, it also seems something like something I can get behind. He's really saying two things. These are the important things to remember about karma. One is whether you notice or don't notice the underlying attitudes and motivations and activity of your mind influences your behavior. Whether you're paying attention to your mind or not, it's affecting what you're doing. And the second thing he says, whatever you do, whatever activities you follow through thought, through speech, through behavior, get reinforced. They get stronger. Right? And so I started to realize this when I first came into my practice and I sat down on the cushion for the first time and I didn't feel the warmth and gratitude. Later I have, so I know this experience, and I have a lot of joy for your joy. Uh, but I noticed this intense, incessant restlessness and discomfort with my body and my mind. And I had done a lot of practicing not feeling my feelings and not sitting with my thoughts and feelings. I had practiced it so much that 10 seconds into the meditation, it felt unbearable. And that may sound like an over-exaggeration, but when I was heard that we were going to be sitting for 25, 30 minutes, I was like, no fucking way. <laughs> and my first few meditation sessions were just, I'm just trying to make it until the bell. It was like almost just a badge of honor. Like I wasn't even cultivating anything other than like, if I can make it till the end of the bell, I've done something amazing. I go and tell everyone like, yeah, I sit in silence for 30 minutes. Like, <laughs> and uh, because whatever we practice, we get better at. And I'd spend a lot of time practicing the opposite of sitting with myself. And so just know if it's hard, Right? The Buddhist teachings are actually quite radical because he's saying that if you want to understand the cause of this stress and suffering, you actually have to sit down with it and stop running from it. And that's a tall order, you know, but that when we do it, we can start to, like was shared, untangle the causes of that discomfort, which are made in the mind, and that really start and have a root in the activity, the attitudes, and the motivations of our mind. And so then we go into wise intention. And the Buddha asks us to actually look at the activity and the attitudes and the motivations in your mind. And he gives us a really simple format. He says, any activity, attitudes, or motivations that are centered in ill will, in cruelty, and greed, he's like, just abandon those. And any motivations, attitudes, activities of your mind that are centered in loving kindness, that are centered in renunciation and generosity and in compassion, follow those. And I'll just pop in to say, like, we start doing this on the cushion. This sounds like glorious work of the heart, but it's the simple, like, observation of when my mind wanders and I return to the breath, what is the attitude in my mind when I return to the breath? Is it like, ooh, you piece of shit, you did it again. I mean, really, because that was me for years. What's wrong with me? I can't do this. I'm just like white-knuckling it. 
Or is it a gentle, easeful, kind, returning to the breath, maybe somewhere in between those two extremes. But it's we start looking at these very simple, slow processes on the cushion with the breath, because it's real hard when you're around the Christmas dinner table with your family, checking what's about to come out of your mouth, you know? So That's right. And the source of our reactivity the Buddha is offering, he said that, I don't think he's saying that the only place. Actually, I think the Buddha's, Buddha was a systems thinker. He's really interested in communities. He's really interested in livelihood. I mean, he, con he contains work within the Eightfold Path, right? He's interested in all of these things, but he's saying that actually the most accessible place to start to examine these things are in your own mind. This reactivity, like Rachel's pointing to, happens while you're meditating. It's like when you hear the teacher say, whenever your mind wanders, no big deal, just return back to the breath, and it's like, okay, I don't have to judge myself, and then I judge myself, and then I judge myself for judging myself, and then I'm battling with my own mind, and it's like, yeah, welcome. That's what it's like in here. And there is a reason I always use my teacher's words, which are like, it's a moment to rejoice. I don't feel like it's a moment to rejoice. That's some flowery language. But it's like, what is all that pushback around that idea about? So Yeah. So we start, we start to really cultivate this in our, uh, our practice through mindfulness, but also through our behavior. Right? And the Buddha offers some guidelines. Again, he's giving us a manual, not a set of rules. He's saying, well, let's start, okay, let's look at our intentions, our motivations, our attitudes, the activity of our mind. But let's kind of give ourselves a little bit of a break. It's a little bit easier to practice having a less reactive mind when you put yourself in less reactive circumstances, right? So he sees this connection between your environment and, and your life, how you set up your life, and your ability to practice loving kindness and compassion and renunciation. And so he says, okay, let's kind of set this up. When you're talking, in your speech, and we're not going to go through all of these, but I'll share them with you. He says, try to ask yourself as a mindfulness practice, in what I... Is what I'm saying true? Is what I'm saying useful? Is what I'm saying timely? Is what I'm speaking kind? And you'll notice that true usefulness, timeliness, kindness, those things are subjective, right? Like sometimes the kind thing is just a simple no. Sometimes the kind thing is I really don't want to do this and it's a pain in the ass, but it would be nice for me to do it. And so it's yes, right? And so these are kind of mindfulness practices to look at how we speak and then how we act. And really the majority of these are centered around what are called the five precepts. And they're called training precepts. So again, they're kind of like bumpers when you're bowling. They just kind of help direct the ball down the alley in the right direction. And the five precepts, just to share them, are to refrain from intentionally causing harm to living beings, to refrain from taking what's not being freely offered to you, to refrain from speech that's not true, useful, timely, or kind, to re refrain from sensual, not just sexual, but sensual activity 
that's harmful to yourself or others. And to refrain from intoxicating drinks and drugs that lead to carelessness. And so this is an understanding that how we treat ourselves and others and how we acquire things, how we use our speech, how we engage in sexuality and in the sensual world, our relationships, how we engage with substances, phones, and all of these things have an influence on how we feel. And here's the important point. It's not about the thing you're doing. It's about your relationship to the thing you're doing. Is there grasping? Is there craving? Is there clinging? Is there reactivity that's caused by these things? And so these precepts help us to look into the mind and help us look into our life and how we set it up. And he also talks about livelihood, which I won't go into a ton, but the point here is to look at right, how we practice guiding ourselves with values, not as a rule book, but actually as a moment-to-moment -moment practice. And in some ways, I'll just say it, becoming a Buddhist, whatever that means, taking the precepts as one of our traditions, helps us to have a compass to guide ourselves. You know, as to say, oh, I don't need to kind of steal that bowl of candy on the receptionist's desk, or I don't need to gossip about the boss I don't like. I don't need to, you know... Uh, be dishonest or kind of leave out my authentic truth and not have boundaries in my relationships. Like I, I need to actually have something to help guide me here. And then lastly, we've been, you know, up, up to this point, we're talking about some pretty solid guidelines. Right? Here's what we said so far. There's a relationship between your actions, whether it's action through your thought or speech or behavior, and your level of peace. It's like, all right, I can get behind that. I've seen that to be true. And then the Buddha is also saying you can examine this level of activity at the level of your mind, within your speech, within your behavior, and also in what you spend your time doing in your livelihood. You can examine this relationship between what you do and what you get. But then we get into, well, how? Right? And this is where I think the Buddha offers us some tools. He's not just saying, hey, look at these things. They're important. He's saying, no, I'm going to actually help show you ways to look. And Rachel's going to talk a little bit about that. Such a good overview, Andrew. I feel like Andrew is like a monastic in his former life because he just like gives this bullet-pointed, like, just covered the whole eightfold path, like, in such a good way. Um, I'm here to talk about choose your own adventure books this morning <laughs> instead. I, you guys remember being a kid and you would check out from the school library a choose your own adventure book? Uh, my kid is eight and he's super into those. Um, I, I, don't, I suspect that many people come to a spiritual practice because it's really frustrating sometimes to feel like we're in this adult world on this choose your own adventure journey trying to figure out like WTF are we supposed to be doing? And like those choose your own adventure books are interesting because what they show is that you make some choices and there's an outcome, right? Like some of those endings of those books, like you fall in the volcano or the lava pit, right? And then the other one, I don't know, you end up 
go into Valhalla and get to live with the Norse gods. I don't know. Choices have outcomes, and it's really hard to figure out like how to navigate all of that. Um, and I think that most people come to a meditation practice because they want some help with that, like trying to figure out like how do I do this adult life? You know, it's very hard. It's very complex. We all come to the cushion, you know, having lived the lives that we lived, and sometimes that includes some baggage around spiritual practice or religion, and it's like, okay, how do I navigate all of that so that I can live a meaningful and connected life, right? Connection and belongingness, I think, are what a lot of folks are looking for. And so it's, it's really amazing, I think, that we have this map. Here's a map. Is it the only map? No, it's a map. The Buddha is always saying, like, don't ever believe anything I say. You should go and look for yourself and see if it's helpful. But here's a map. And actually, people have been checking this map out for 2,600 years and got some ideas about how well this map works. And it's interesting. I'm glad you read the sutta out loud. I often reflect on the story of the Buddha and his, like, awakening, his profound spiritual experience. And he's like, what do I, what do, I do with this? Do I teach this or not? And, like, the most compassionate thing he can do is to offer that teaching. And, like, so what a meaningful map this is that he's offering. But, um, yeah, I don't know. Maps. I, I came to a practice because I was like, where am I going? Does somebody have a map? I don't know how to get there. My other maps didn't work very well. For the love of God, somebody please tell me what to do. And this has been a pretty good map for the past almost 20 years for me. But you know, kind of my own experience zooming out this idea of maps is that what we're being offered here, it's really a way to reorient to our life, essentially. Like, can I come into a different relationship with all of these parts of my life up here? Um, and can I reorient to the way that I'm living? And it starts on the cushion by reorienting to the way I experience and engage with this mind. So I think what Andrew did a really good job of kind of outlining was that, you know, what's really embedded in this teaching is that really all of our experience comes from our mind. And anybody who's watched The Matrix, like, I love that movie so much because I think it captures it so well. And I don't actually think this is some revolutionary concept here. Like, we all understand how my perception is different than your perception. We're both, you know, looking at our Dharma talk up here, but what we see is very different based on our past experiences and our physical bodies and our eyeballs and you know, all the associations that go along with it. But, you know, it's like, how can we reorient into the present moment in a way that's very connected and very intimate and that is leading us towards this better life that all of us want that is has some more ease and some more peace and a little bit more freedom, maybe two degrees more, you know, and more connection, you know, that kind of gets at that loneliness and aloneness that a lot of people come into practice with. And so it's curious, right? It's like, here's, here's a way to start reorienting towards the present moment, starting on the cushion, starting in the mind. And then we get to all be like scientists about our experience, which is very awesome. We get to check and see, does this set of tools and these strategies work? We got to go collect some data to see if it actually works or not. So we can say, like, I don't know, the old way of doing shit probably wasn't working so well. That's why everybody ends up on the cushion. Um, and then it's like, okay, well, here's another option. It's a map. How does this map work in my life? And so, again, what Andrew said, like, here's some areas we need to check into, but it's not just here. Good luck with that. But, like, oh, here is a very rich set of practices to be able to, to do that checking with. Um, I often like to share the uh, 
this idea that like the untrained mind is like a flag flapping around in the wind and everybody knows what that feels like when you sit down your mind is just all over the place and so we have a really awesome set of strategies here techniques for doing this exploration and exploring this map so that we don't feel buffeted around by those winds call them the eight worldly winds but we can get some tranquility and some stability um, kind of is the launching point, the diving board for this really cool exploration. So, um, yeah, I think you wanted to talk yeah. about that exploration, those set of strategies yeah. that we have. Yeah, so the way the Buddha outlines this, the, the way the Buddha outlines this in the Eightfold Path is the last three path factors. Effort, mindfulness, and concentration. And... Again, he's still giving a map, so here he's not talking about the techniques, but in other discourses he expounds upon this map and he gives some actually pretty detailed instructions. And when he talks about effort, one of the things that he's saying here is that we actually have to sit down and watch the mind. He's saying that it takes energy Maybe not this striving, rigid energy that we're conditioned so much in the West around, like this performance-based, achievement-based. It actually takes a, a harder type of energy. I would call it persistence. And persistence is a willingness to look over and over and over again at a mind that basically will be reactive and will continue to be reactive and will continue to be unkind and greedy and cruel, those other three intentions, those unwholesome intentions, it will continue to do that time and time again. And to have persistence means, I think in a simple way for me personally, it means just to have a practice, right? And so making the effort to really say, okay, something needs to change, right? Like I need to actually sit down and take a look. And that bridge between a good idea and a practice has been a hard and long bridge for me, right? And so fortunately, when in the beginning I had a community where I could say oh, at least twice a week I can come and practice. I can make that effort to really look Right? Because if nothing changes, nothing changes. Right? If I don't start looking, if I don't make that effort, I'm not going to get this intimacy and this curiosity with my mind. So the Buddha talks about effort. He talks about mindfulness and the four foundations. So what are you looking at when you meditate? He's saying there are these fields of awareness that we can investigate. There's the body. <coughs> Within the body, there's uh, this experience of feeling, of pleasure in the body, and unpleasant feelings in the body, and neutral feelings in the body. And there's this bridge of feelings between the body and the mind, because there are also pleasant thoughts, and unpleasant thoughts, and neutral thoughts. So he's saying you can look at the body, you can look at feeling, you can look at mind states or attitudes of your mind, and you can also look into your conceptual thought, the way that you're viewing the world through mindfulness as an active practice. And he gives instructions, and obviously we're not going to 
go through all of them today. But he gives instructions very much like even Rachel offered one of them that dates about back 2,600 years. When you're breathing in, know that you're breathing in. When you're breathing out, know that you're breathing out. Simple, but that practice takes persistence. It's a remembering and a returning over and over. Right? And so he gives instructions on how to practice mindfulness in the body. That includes the breath. Mindfulness of feeling, mindfulness of mind states, and mindfulness of mind and conceptual thought. And then he says, well, okay, if you're going to try to be mindful, it helps to be able to collect your attention, to still the mind. And up here, we use the word concentration, which I've never been, uh, I've never had an affinity for that word. Mostly because I've been told I'm not great at it most of my life. I was always the kid that was running around and, you know, telling jokes and distracting the teacher. And I heard pay attention more times than I could count, right? But no one ever actually sat me down and told, taught me how to pay attention. They told me pay attention, but I wasn't interested in what they were saying. And so I didn't listen. And then I thought and I came to believe that I actually can't do it. I can't pay attention. But no one ever said, hey, actually, you might want to be able to focus. You might want to be able to be present for the things that you find valuable. And let me show you. Here's a practice of breath awareness. And when your mind wanders off, notice it and come back. And we're just going to do that over and over. And as you practice that, guess what? Whatever you practice, you get better at. It's the law of karma, cause and effect. I started to be able to notice, oh, I can actually stay present with my breath for a little bit longer. And I noticed that when I was focused on my breath and I wasn't so distracted by my thoughts and meditation, which took time, and the best grade you get is like a C minus, so it's okay. But as I started to cultivate some concentration, some ability, the real word is samadhi, which means a collectedness of awareness. Once my awareness started to collect, my mind became more still. And once my mind became more still, my seeing of my mind became more refined. So sometimes you think your mind is wandering a lot during meditation, but actually maybe you're noticing more how much your mind wanders already. Does that make sense? A lot of times you think, oh my gosh, I can't meditate because you notice that your attention's all over the place. But actually, maybe you're having more noticings per minute, as Joseph Goldstein calls it. And so then you start to investigate with some concentration, some ability to focus on the breath. And Rachel's going to talk about this a little bit more, is the practice, right? You start to notice more of these kind of movements of the mind. You can investigate what's unfolding in your experience, right? It's kind of like the best, most interesting, curious adventure you could ever go on in adulthood. That's how I feel like. I know y'all have heard me say this before, but I loved to read mythology when I was a little kid. We have a TV, and I always like wanted to go on adventures, but I'm broke as an adult. So there are not <laughs> many geographical adventures happening in my life these days. 
But I think about meditation on the cushion as kind of like the most amazing adventure that you could go on. Like we get to plumb the depths of our own consciousness. Like how cool is that? You don't even need drugs to do it. Like just a cushion. You can use a chair at your house. It's free. Um, but it's kind of an amazing thing that is being offered here, which is like, Here's a set of instructions, lots of instructions, but the foundational ones are everybody has a mind that has the capacity to show up. And that when I think about like, what are we doing on a very basic level? We're learning how to show up over and over and over again. And again, think about like how many times you've done that, not done that in your adult life, probably like, a, I don't know what multiple billions are, but we think about neural pathways. Like we have a society that's just, everything in it is about pulling us away from ourselves and pulling our attention outward. And so we get to do this pretty revolutionary practice of sitting quietly on a cushion with eyes open or eyes closed and getting really, really intimate with what is going on and moving into a space of radical not knowing, not knowing, not like heaping on all of these ideas about in living the, you know, experiencing the present through the lens of conceptual mind. Instead, we get to come back come back, come back, how am I coming back? Over and over and over again, and man, I don't know, I didn't start meditating until I was in my 20s, so I don't know if there's ever gonna be enough mindfulness to counter all of that early, like getting pulled outward, but it does make a difference, and it is this like, in the spirit of scientific exploration, like does it make a difference? When I come back to this body just as it is, this mind and this heart, do I start to feel a little more calmness? And it's interesting. I, too, have never really been satisfied with this, like, uh, translation of concentration is what we're doing here initially. Um, I like, some in some traditions, it's called calm abiding or tranquility meditation. I personally like that a little bit more. But what we're doing is steadying the mind, steadying the mind, so that we're not getting swept away by all the currents or the winds, whatever nature metaphor you like. Um, but that there's a feeling of steadiness. And, and everybody in here has had it, even if it's your first time sitting. You know what that feels like, even if it's just for a second. It is a deep, like, oh, nervous system settles for just a sec. And, and then we get to, that's kind of the diving board, the launch pad for this um, exploration of mind and experience. We've got to steady the mind first enough um, kind of in therapy land, we call this in part cognitive defusion, so getting unfused from the contents of our thinking. Most of us walk around very welded to the contents of our minds and our bodies as though that's who we were. And meditation is saying, oh, no, we can develop this capacity of, of awareness that can be with <laughs> thoughts, emotions, sensations, you know, all of these things, but not be not be the thing. And again, my God, if you've suffered from an anxiety disorder and had some relief from that, from mindfulness, like, oh God, what a relief to know like, oh, I'm not my thoughts. I'm not my feelings. I'm actually not the sensations in my body either. Um, and then usually it's like, like a magnet and we're back there hooked again. But we can get a little unhooked and get a little bit of relief from that reactivity, have those moments and they really sustain practice, I think, because they reinforce the benefits of practice. But that's really not actually what Vipassana meditation is. <laughs> that's just like the precursor. That's the opening chapter. We've got to steady and still the mind. Um, and honestly, if that's all you ever did, that'd be so helpful in your life. But then we get this extra like chapter of like, oh, but then from the steady pool, we start to look deeply into like, oh, let me, 
when they look into the nature of these thoughts and these sensations and these emotions, this clear looking or clear seeing, which is insight meditation, and it's kind of two ways to do it. We can get like um, know know what's known, so like this outward facing, like know the breath, no sounds, no sensations, but then we get to know the knowing, so mindfulness of mind and mindfulness of awareness. But you know, it's it's this really interesting thing where. Again, like you should believe nothing that Andrew and I say up here ever, but you should really go look into your own mind and into your own experience and look at if you can start to show up a little differently. Like, does that change all these habitual patterns of body, speech, and mind? And does that change how I show up for other humans in my life? Or if you don't have a lot of humans in your life, maybe your dogs or your cats or your fish or your plants, you know? It's like, does this change this reorienting process change the way that I'm living my life because that's kind of what we're looking for here, right? Like things should be different a little bit. Um, and so it is this curious kind of like big picture question of like how cap do I think I'm capable of this? I didn't actually think I was. But I thought like a little bit of happiness, a little bit of peacefulness, a little bit of ease, like maybe one or two percent totally doable. But like complete happiness, complete peacefulness, complete freedom, like probably not possible for me in this life, which is kind of like a heartbreaking thing to say out loud, actually. Um, but it was interesting, so you might check in with yourself, like do I think I'm up to this task? How capable am I on a scale of one to 10 here of like experiencing some freedom and some liberation? Doesn't have to be the big L, it could be the little one. It doesn't have to be the big F freedom. Um, you know, and it's funny because I think a, a better way of asking this is like maybe rate yourself again. Like, how capable do you feel just this morning, just right now, of like in your ability to like turn towards your experience? Because it's what we're talking about. It's like the most intimate thing over and over and over again to move into this really re awesome relationship with the present moment based in not knowing. But how capable do you feel in this moment right now of like doing that? that reorienting process. It's kind of the same thing as, as liberation and waking up, but sometimes they feel a little bit different. So I know I would be super curious to hear from folks about that in the discussion portion of things. Um, you know, and it's like, it, when you look at this up here too, kind of moving into like inquiry and conversation, like does this path that's being offered here feel like a trustworthy thing to rest your heart upon. I get to be the like poetic flowery one up here. Andrew gets to be the monastic with the bullet pointed lists. But like, does this feel like a trustworthy enough thing to rest your heart upon? Check it out. And if you've tried it out, you know, what's your experience with that? But I don't know, what before we move into convo, anything else? Yeah, yeah. So